I'm now seeing Wakanda forever three times. There's a lot to absorb in terms of its story, visuals, music, and performances. We've heard from director and co-writer Ryan Coogler and his cast and crew about all these things over the course of this podcast. But after three viewings, I'm struck by something both more shallow and more profound. Beauty. White supremacy, the system which enabled the descendants of Europe to steal an outsized portion of this world's labor and land, has always been tied to a specious notion of beauty. You see, a criminal power cannot merely exist. It must justify itself. The natives are lazy and thus must be made to work. The Africans are pagan and thus must be given the light of our Lord and Savior. These little brown brothers aren't fit to govern themselves. It is the white man's burden to save them. That each of these false flags serve to enrich the colonizer is, we are told, merely a side effect. Other false flags are rendered merely as adjectives. Lustful, warlike, stupid, ugly. These words are not furnished as mere insults, but as sanctifiers of pillage and plunder. Black people are nappy-headed, dark, big-lipped, and flat-nosed, and thus deserve to be plundered of their labor, to be shot down in our streets, to die first in our movies. And so what does it mean that Wakanda and Telecon give us a beauty created not to justify enslavement, but to celebrate freedom. We should really take a moment to acknowledge that Winston Duke's M'Baku can be considered an object of beauty. Only a generation ago, Hollywood would have seen him very differently. And ditto for Okoye, Nakia, Nomura, Atuma, Ramonda, and our main characters, Shuri, who takes on the mantle of the Black Panther, and Namor, the feathered serpent god. On this episode, we dive deep into the beauty, complexity, and nuance of Shuri, Namor, Wakanda, and Telecon, with actors Letitia Wright and Tenoch Huerta, and cultural consultant Dr. Geraldo Aldana. My name is Tanahasi Coates, and this is Wakanda Forever the official Black Panther podcast. A few months ago, I unpacked all of my old comics from the 80s. I think like half of them were some version of X-Men. It's not hard to see why. The X-Men were mutants, a race feared and hated by the rest of humanity. In my mind, mutants were black, What other experience of repression could they possibly be pulling from? As it turns out, quite a few. Depending on where you sat, mutants were Jewish, mutants were gay, mutants were Native American. The first mutant to ever exist in the Marvel Universe is Prince Namor. Pointy ears and winged ankles aside, Namor is generally depicted as a white man. This is not unusual. While mutants in the Marvel Universe are a diverse bunch, Some of the best-known ones, Cyclops, Wolverine, Iceman, Angel, are all white men. I love a lot of these characters, but I have to admit, it's always been a little hard to buy the super-powered white guys the object of pogroms and genocidal violence. Namor, or Namor, doesn't have that problem in Wakanda forever. 
Instead, you see a mutant emerging not out of genetics, but out of the crucible of oppression. Whereas mutants in Marvel Comics are born in Wakanda forever, they are made. And that history is not a side story. It's the entire story. It explains Namor's rage, his desperation, and the path he takes, which eventually leads to a collision with Wakanda. As production designer Hannah Beekler and costume designer Ruthie Carter mentioned in previous episodes, this was tricky terrain. Namor and the Talakaneel are tied to the experience of enslavement, but they are anchored in Mesoamerican history and Mayan culture, not the Black experience, as Wakanda was in the first film. We live in an era where the West is finally beginning to reckon with how much of its legacy is built on the capture, dismemberment, and exploitation of other cultures. The phrase du jour for this phenomenon, cultural appropriation, always felt stale, given what it was trying to describe. When Cleveland's baseball team proclaims itself the Indians, or when Loretta Lynn claims to be a squaw on the warpath, they aren't appropriating so much as enjoying the spoils of conquest. To make sure this construction of Namor and the world of Telecon wasn't part of this tradition, Ryan and his crew sought out people who knew more than them. People like Geraldo Aldana, professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and actor Tenoch Huerta. Geraldo was a cultural consultant on the film, and Tenoch brought Namor to life on screen. I spoke with the two of them about the difficult task of crafting fiction out of a painful history. But first I asked Tenoch about the reaction to the film in his own country. Well, the people is happy with this. They feel strongly represented. For example, now in, in the city, in Mexico City, there are like three murals with the character. Wow. You know, the representation of the character. Have you seen them? Have you got to see them? Yeah, yeah, uh, a couple of them. And, you know, the people is sending me message kind of, hey, man, I feel proud of myself. Or my baby is looking at me in a different way, my kids. And the kids are feeling better with themselves. There is a fantastic story. It's a little boy in a toy store, and uh, he take a name or doll and he say this is my dad he's like my dad and his mom is saying uh, no 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 your dad is is more ugly than this you know <laughs> and this 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 toy is beautiful but but you know apart from the joke the thing was this is the power of representation the kids finally are seeing themselves and seeing their parents and grandparents and all the members of their community represented in toys, in a movie, these murals, but it's not this craziness that, you know, that people is like, oh, it's just because it's an actor or it's a big movie. No, no, no. It's something deeper. It is going directly to their hearts and it is helping to heal historical wounds. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that was the huge kind of gamble, right? Like, Ryan really was playing, like, five-dimensional chess with this movie. Because first and foremost, no question, it was about Chadwick Boseman. It was about grieving. It was about something that we all needed to go through. And you can't take that away. But the amount of effort and, like, everything that went into creating Indigenous representation was 
a film in and of itself, right? And and I think that's what's coming through. People are seeing that it's not just a, it's not a prop. Like my greatest fear when I was approached to work on this was that it was going to be indigeneity as a prop, which you see everywhere, right? Oh, they're exotic. Oh, they look cool, neat headdresses. And that was not it from the very beginning. And you see the result of that. You see that when you put that time and effort into creating these rich characters, like the whole scene, right? You, you see a Tuma, but you see a Tuma also in the palace with his regular everyday clothes on. Mm. You see people in the marketplace. You're seeing them as real rich individuals, not just, mm. you know, kind of a prop. And I think that's the level that was the gift to indigenous and Latino communities that Ryan pulled out because it could have just been about what Black Panther needed and what that audience needed. But he went so much further. Yeah. What was the importance of him ruining it in... Um, actually, I'm, I'm going to back up. I'm going to back up. Geraldo, will you help us out? Because I think we want to be very, very specific here. There are a lot of terms that, you know, I've seen in just doing the research for, you know, this interview. And I just want to, you know, be clear that we're speaking correctly and using the right terms. Yeah. If you could define, like, what we're going to be referring to when we talk about Mayan culture, what we're going to be referring to when we talk about Meso... American culture, how that is differentiated or within, you know, the broader uh, Latin American world. And then finally, how we even got to the name Telecon or Telecanil. Oh, Sorry, I know that's right a on. lot. Yeah, that's I know that's a lot, but I, it's going to bracket the rest of this conversation. We're so right I think on. it's important. Let's go. All right. So Mesoamerica is that region from northern Mexico to like central, Central America. And it's because they all, in pre-contact times, they all shared a lot of the same practices, a lot of the same... Um, intellectual tools, astronomy, all based on maize agriculture, right? So there's common traits that connected them all in that region and that distinguished them from folks further north and further south. So Mesoamerica is basically what we call that region in pre-contact times. And when we talk about um, Mayan culture specifically, we're getting into that region that is southern Mexico, it's Chiapas, it's Yucatan, Campeche, Quintana Roo, and then down south to Belize, um, Guatemala, Honduras, parts of El Salvador. So you have that smaller hunk, which is Mayan, but it also has its phases. So it goes from like an earlier phase, a formative period, to a classic stage, to a post-classic stage. And all of that sets the backdrop for 16th century and contact with Europeans. But it also, and this is a really fun part for me, and I can't wait to get your thoughts on this, Tenoch, but very early on, Ryan and I were talking about then how that fits into cosmologies, right? So how did Mesoamericans in this region, how did they understand the world, the universe that they lived in? So we're talking about, you know, like underworld, the middle world, the celestial realm, you know, it's like three layers, it's anchored to a locality. And so in that space, you have communities that live in these three realms. And in the underworld, it's not just everything below the surface of the earth. It's the communities that live down there. And so we were talking about, okay, um, there's some examples of this. We go to a place called Teotihuacan, which is not Mayan, but it is from the same time period. It's near Mexico City. And there's these murals there that depict life in the underworld. And there's an image that we refer to. It's not actually the same language. They didn't speak Nahuatl, we don't think, at Teotihuacan. But the place was called Tlalocan mm. in Nahuatl by the Aztecs. And so we were talking about that, like, it's a paradise in the underworld, right? It's the afterlife, but it's this fantastic afterlife. And if you were to go there in your sleep, you might not want to wake up because it's so fabulous. So it's just like this wonderful place. And Ryan's like, yeah, that's it. That's what we're talking about. Because 
going into the ocean is also going into the underworld. Mm. So we're talking about people who go into an alternate realm. They're going into this different cosmological space to now live. So we were saying, okay, so Tlalocan is the kind of the idea, but it can't be Tlalocan because that's the Nahuatl term. And we're talking about a Yucatec community. So we had this fantastic like coincidence that in the Dresden Codex, which is this hieroglyphic manuscript from like the 13th century, there's an example of a Nahuatl word written in Yucatec Mayan. And it's a Tlahuizcalpantecutli that's written as Tawiska. And so I said, all we have to do then is say that this Yucatec community knew something about Tlalocan, but they were pronouncing it Talocan so that it fit their language and it fit their representational style. So we're like, okay, great, Talocan. Mm. Then, and I want to know if this is true or not, Ryan comes to me and he's like, hey, Tenoch says that, you know, he doesn't really look totally Mayan, so, so can he possibly be mixed? Can he be like mixed indigenous? And I'm like, that's perfect, because if Tenoch's like father's family is Pochteca, then what that means is that there are these like mercenary spies from the Aztec Empire, and they come out and they live in Yucatan, and then his mom is Mayan, so he's like this mixed indigenous race. And then it gets even better because once they go into the underworld, and Tenoch is like, or not Tenoch, Namor. <laughs> Namor's like, hey, I want to know about my dad. I want to know about his community. She's telling him all these stories about what he would tell her. And he talks about Tlalocan, which becomes Talocan. So then you end up with the final name. He's like inspired by this father that he never knew, this paradise in the underworld. And that becomes the name of what he wants to build. Yeah, the, totally. It's a, it was a, a fantastic exercise to work with this uh, enormous uh, historical heritage. And we did all these uh, games because, yeah, of course, uh, my features are not Mayans, but my family comes from the central of the Mexico and, and Michoacán. So it's different features, but it works, you know. And... Um, at the same time, I want to make the distinction between this world, Mayan and, and classical world, pre-Hispanic, which is, uh, is how it's built, this old movie, and the indigenous that are living today in our territories. Mm-hmm. It's, it's different, you know, because the indigenous today, they are suffering a lot of oppression, racism, classism, and uh, it's uh, a cultural holocaust i can compare it with that you know they have been systematically destroyed all their culture and uh, it's important to make this distinction because at the end even though i have a indigenous heritage like everybody like everybody else or almost everybody else in mexico and latin america i can't name myself indigenous because in our territory it doesn't matter if you have blood isn't mm. it because it's not in your blood mm. it's cultural mm. i can't mm. say i'm indigenous mm. because culturally mm. i don't practice their ways i don't speak their languages mm. i don't live in a community i, I don't practice mm-hmm. their culture so I, it's impossible to name myself indigenous i mix or mestizo it's a mm-hmm. uh, political category is not exactly about your blood. It's, again, cultural. So I'm mestizo, I'm mixed, and we are representing an indigenous group, but it's 500 years old, Right. you know? So it's important. But that doesn't mean 
that the current indigenous and the mixed people in Latin America can feel represented. I mean, they can feel connected. They can recognize themselves because at the end we have the same root. We are talking about the ancient, an ancient root, 500 years old root. Mm -hmm. So we create something from that period. But yeah, just to be respectful. No, no, Tanoch, actually, I, I really, really, really appreciate you doing that. Um, and I really appreciate you clarifying that. Um, I think it's actually tremendously, tremendously important. And, and frankly, it leads down a, a, an even more interesting, like I have so many questions coming even out of what you just said. And the first I would ask is, do you have any sense of those who would define themselves as indigenous, like what their actual reaction to the film has been? Do you have any sense of that? And Geraldo, please feel free to chime in if you do too. Well, the, I received messages from people from uh, Yucatan, mm -hmm. and uh, they they are happy with the movie. And uh, there is a fantastic story about a guy he went to the movies with uh, his grandmother, and yes. uh, she's Mayan, and she started to translate oh, no, really? the the movie to him. Wow! She was saying, "Oh, they are saying this, they are saying that, they are blah 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 blah." blah. So that that's that's beautiful. And uh, in LA, there are many many indigenous groups. Of course, migrants they migrate from all. Latin America to states and they stay in, in LA and the Mayan group in LA say hey it, it sounds beautiful it's like okay you have an accent you you, you, you can't lie to me you have an accent but I love it it sounds good and it, they are happy with that you know mm -hmm. and that's important That and for me what's really important it's like I, okay guys I'm not pretending to be something that I'm not mm -hmm. I just want to honor who you are, who we are, because at the at the same time we share the same root. You know, in, in Spanish they say mis viejos abuelos, you know, my ancestors. Yes. So mm -hmm. I'm just trying to honor my ancestors. We mm -hmm. share ancestors. I'm just honoring them. And if you feel represented as indigenous or as a mix or whatever, it's beautiful. Mm. Um Geraldo, have you had a chance? Have you seen uh, much reaction uh, from the indigenous community to the film? And yeah, I, I mean, I love that story too, because when I heard that, I, I, I felt like I was going to cry, you know, like uh, an abuelita just translating for her family the, the lines. And so it's just gorgeous. But I think that there's a sensitivity to this notion of identity and, and who's being represented in what ways built into the film itself. Again, so I, I think Ryan nailed this too, right? The, the, the scene at the Hacienda when he's just a kid and he sees what's happening. Like that is mm. a representation of the colonialism that sets the conditions for what indigenous people are, are experiencing today. So indigenous communities are gonna feel seen because there's that representation showing, oh, oh, like don't forget what happened to us, right? It's not that we disappeared. Mm. It's not that, you know, everything's fine now. There was something very significant that changed the course. And that made something like Dalokan possible, which is because we're engaging that whole, like the Afrofuturism concept, right? Alternative historical futures. We're saying, now, what if we could imagine indigeneity that still persisted without colonial impact, right? That opens up a whole new world, a whole new way of thinking. And that kind of freeing of the imagination is another thing that I think a lot of folks are responding to, right? They're saying, oh man, like, I don't always have to think of myself as colonized. I don't always have to think of indigeneity as being that thing that we lost, right? There's still something to be inspired by it. And that's the part that just blows me away. 
and it's continued again, right? So Ryan doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with like ancients and then um, Talocan and then colonialism. He brings in when, when Nakia goes and speaks to the elder in that community. And so you're seeing like mm-hmm. modern indigenous people living the way that they do, right? Which, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's definitely challenges. There's definitely poverty. There's definitely um, extractivism in these regions. But there's also something that's beautiful about being in those spaces. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he totally captures that in the memorabilia hut. I don't know what you eventually end up calling it, but his little space, right? Mm. Namor doesn't create this massive palace or museum for all of his stuff. He's got this little traditional Yucatec hut with a thatched roof where he keeps like everything that's precious to him. And I don't know, I mean, watching the scenes where he just goes in there, it just feels so comfortable, feels so familiar that it just blows me away because you're capturing on the one hand, the violence and the challenge, and at the same time, the beauty and, and the humility of being in those communities. I just feel like, you know, he knocked it out of the park. What Ryan did, he jumped to the root. The very first moment where we were broken. He jumped in that moment. Yeah. And that's beautiful because it represents all of us. It's like the same tree and different brands. So each brand, Mexican-American, Mexicans, actual Mexicans, Latin American people, indigenous people, all of us, we have the same root, the same first moment. You know, it's like the black diaspora. That's exactly and what it's like. You can yeah. speak about the black people in states now, the black people in Europe, the black people in wherever, wherever you want, or you can jump 500 years ago and and speak about this fantastic and strong culture, and how the coloni- colonies, colonialism, colonialism. We'll take it. We get colonialism. It. We get it. Break it. <laughs> right. And then it. You know, everything happened. So it's basically the same process. He jumped to the very first moment and then he created all this narrative from that moment. That's why everybody can feel represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Noach, it's interesting that you said that, though, because um, that's kind of, I think, what happened actually with the first Black Panther because, you know, for the root, for us as members of the Black diaspora, it is Africa. By going back to the root as he did with, with Wakanda in Africa, it allows black people in America, black people in the Caribbean, as you said, black people in Europe and black people on the continent to see themselves in that route. And so it's a very, very you know, powerful thing. I, I understand what you mean uh, there. I, I want to ask a somewhat delicate question. And I don't know if you guys have had people in your orbit uh, who have had this reaction, but it is a superhero movie. And in superhero movies, people fight. And <laughs> certainly one of the reactions that has come back to me is, why are these two groups fighting each other? Why can't they get together and go, you know what I mean, you know, beat the, you know, the colonizer, go beat the, you know, why, why? Like, it's very difficult for people to watch the second, for certain, you know, certain people, a common reaction. It's hard for me to watch that second half of that movie and see, you know, them fighting each other. And I will confess, you know, one of the things, like, I, I you know, obviously I, you know, am a huge Black Panther fan, but... I was in there and I, you know, I, I find myself rooting for the Telekineal, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know where... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know what, you know, what side I, you know, there's that, that great scene where uh, Namora goes and she uh, she stops the, the sonic weapon that's coming out of the ship. Yeah. And she's so ferocious with it. And I was like, go, 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 you know, cheer for her. You know what I mean? And so it's a very interesting 
<laughs> you know to figure out what side you're on. And so I, I, I'm curious whether you guys have encountered that reaction uh, at all in terms of people not quite knowing how to feel about the violence and the fighting. Well, I think it's a reflection of what is happening right now in the world. Yes, it is. You know, yes, it's it not is. about just our communities. It's about the, the world. And in terms of... Uh, yeah, if you are talking about racism and anti-racism, of course, you have these two groups, especially in the United States, these two groups, that are, they are fighting to have a place and you are fighting to have a recognition. So something that is really, really tricky and really evil from the uh, system is you have two or three minorities and just one place. Right. And they have to fight each other to have that place instead of change all the system because there are places there are room for all of us mm-hmm. so yeah, i'm, I'm going to be honest it was the uh, um it's the very first draft of the script that i read mm. i was like you know ryan i i could be totally out of bounds here but i just feel like what are we doing because the way it reads it's mm. like the oppressed battling the oppressed like what and mm. and then one of them loses and like like what is that how do we even celebrate that like yes it's going to be great to have this incredible representation of indigeneity but then like what message are we sending and i feel like Mm. i mean i struggle with that a lot and i feel like we had conversations about that concept too it's conversations about power it's conversations about abuse of power in what form and here you have these two communities that have singular powers powers that no Mm. one else on the planet has what's your responsibility for responding to that state and so i feel like again we get back to that like five-dimensional chess because there's really a second massive storyline. Yes, the first storyline is about grief, but the second storyline is allyship. It's like allyship is not kumbaya. It doesn't have to be like everything is beautiful, like let's just make it work. No, I mean, Mm -hmm. the stuff that they're saying about each other, the way they're going at each other, you hear those arguments from people on the streets, like dealing with it every day. It's totally real. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it still comes out that Yes, it's much more valuable for us to come together and to experience power in a different way mm-hmm. than to just go the colonial abuse of power route. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what's really, again, like so rich about the film. It's not trying to say, okay, allyship is, you know, we get together, everything's good, we're perfect, harmony. It's like, you've got to have those tough discussions. You've got to have those mm-hmm. emotions that are raw that come out. And, and, and so I feel like, on the one hand, it's represented in the film. Like that's allyship. That's finding a way to work together around a common need. But what was brilliant to me was that that's the experience that I had in the making of the film, right? Like this was an alliance. This was brilliant black artists who were doing this project. And then here they are inviting Chicanos, Latinos, people of color of different communities into this space. And it didn't feel like it was awkward. It didn't feel like it was, you know what, here we go. We're just going to kind of paint this over, like it was genuine collaboration. And that to me is the allyship on the inside that probably gets reflected um, in the film itself. Yeah, that's, that's that. I mean, I, I know just here in North America, you know, we have to, you know, we always struggle to hold like the fact that a complicated history between indigenous Americans, and I should say in the United States, not in North America, in the United States, you know, the, the complicated history, we had a history of Cherokee slaveholders here. Uh, we also had a history of African Americans going west to, you know, as quote unquote Indian killers, you know, and 
it's difficult, <laughs> you know, and we don't always like to talk about it. But that is, I, I think one of the strengths of the film is it does not abandon allyship. It doesn't abandon it, but also doesn't, you know, paper over the fact that, you know, this, you know, comes with challenges. I took this job not just to randomly interview, you know, people in a movie that I love, but to really, really learn. And maybe more than any of the interviews I've done, and, and you know, we've done quite a bit, this has just been tremendously, tremendously educational uh, for me. Um, I, I kind of vaguely knew what it would mean for Ryan to do the film this way and, and, and who he chose, you know, um, and how he dealt with Namor, but um, you guys have definitely added a whole new layer to it. And so just, you know, personally for me, I just want to thank you guys. I know you guys are very, very busy. I appreciate you guys, you know, taking the time uh, to talk to us today. No, no, I can't thank you enough, Tanessi. And Tenoch, like, honestly, like, from the very beginning, Ryan said, yeah, we're, we're thinking about Tenoch Huerta for this role. And, and I was like, oh, that's been in my mind the whole time. Like, oh. this guy's going to do it. So it's just an honor to meet you, too. Thank you so much. Uh, it's the same. It's the same, Gerardo. Honestly, I wanted to say thank you for mm. all your effort, for all your mm. passion, for all your heart and your mind and your knowledge in this movie. You did something beautiful. Mm. And you did something to feel proud of. Mm. Honestly, man, you and all the advisors, all of you are changing many, many lives yes, in the deepest way possible. And honestly, maybe we're going to die and never measure how much you are touching the life of the kids and the the new generation. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the place and the, the opportunity to speak with the people. And and go, please, go to the movies. Uh, <laughs> and watch Black Panther Wakanda Forever on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I want to pick up on something from the last part of my conversation with Geraldo and Tenoch. That sticky concept of allyship. I've heard more than a few of my friends remark that they did not know what to do with the last half of the film when the Wakandans and Telekanil are at war. Instead of fighting their common enemy, they fight each other. The result? Long set pieces constructed out of black on brown and brown on black violence. These scenes are both thrilling and repulsive. The choreographed violence draws you in, but the fact of who's doing the violence to who leaves you covering your eyes. Comic book movies are premised on escapism, and yet this aspect of Wakanda Forever feels way too real. There's something more. That Telecon and Wakanda end up fighting reflects the very real history and difficulties of allyship. It's not that Wakanda forever abandons the notion. It just refuses to paper over its difficulties. My buddy, journalist Adam Sura, says that Ryan Coogler wants us to feel bad about violence. When I shared that with Ryan, he agreed and told me, I've seen a lot of violence in my life, and it's awful. Perhaps no character in the MCU more wrestles with the problem of violence than Black Panther. 
He was introduced in Captain America's Civil War, pursuing vengeance only to abandon it. Then in his own movie, T'Challa is faced with an enemy created by the very father he sought to avenge. And in Wakanda Forever, Shuri's foe represents an entire civilization endangered by her brother's decision to reveal Wakanda to the world. So nothing is simple in Wakanda, on or off screen. Letitia Wright returned as Shuri, but with an entirely different burden to carry. To play the role, Letitia endured a grueling 10-month shoot and the death of her spiritual brother, Chad. Moreover, she had to show the world that she was capable of taking on the transition from comedic little sister to queen to Black Panther. I know you've been talking, and actually we've been talking a lot in the podcast with other people about the pain from which this comes. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do too much of that. I saw you say something about how every time you have to do it, it's a little triggering. Mm-hmm. So I, I got a kind of goofy question for you, but it's a serious one. I mean, it's going somewhere. I'm not just like joking about this. All right, then. But um, have you, like, I just saw this, like literally like about an hour ago. Have you like seen the TikToks about you? Ooh. <laughs> Man, what a way to start. <laughs> I have seen the TikToks. What do you think? I'm really shocked by it. Uh-huh. It's definitely flattering, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really shocked because I just wanted to... I always just play Shuri and mm-hmm. tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And with the first one, everyone really saw her as really funny and really mm-hmm. cool. And mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to do that on purpose. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell the truth mm-hmm. of her personality and her spirit. Mm-hmm. People really took to that. So that wave of reaction of, wow, she's really cool, funny, inspirational. I really loved it. And then this time around, it's like the cool and the funny and the inspirationals, the foundations are still there. But right. No, it's they doing something else. <laughs> but something else is happening. Something else. <laughs> it's, it's something more. else is happening. It's a lot more. It's a lot going on. Yeah. I, um, I researched that. Um, I saw my ha- the hashtag of my name is at 500 million views on TikTok. Jeez. So... Listen, I just played the character. <laughs> right. Did you like, um, you just tell me, can you tell me just a little bit about your, your dramatic background, like when you started acting? Yeah, um, for like, sure. Like how old were you when you started acting? Like 12. Okay. I was about 12. And how old were you when you were like, I think this is the thing? 17. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because acting is such a visual medium, mm-hmm. I wonder, and I ask you specifically also as a black woman, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about this in reference to what we were just talking about. I wonder how you pictured yourself. I wonder what your view of yourself was. Did you think of yourself as like beautiful? Was that like a thing, a way that you perceived yourself? To be honest, no. Because of the ways in which I was pretty much bullied in school Mm -hmm. for my size, for how I I didn't look like the other girls. Mm -hmm. I quote unquote wasn't developing in the ways the other girls were Mm -hmm. in terms of their bodies Mm -hmm. and I struggled with that for many years and I just thought something was wrong with me until I kind of let that go Mm -hmm. um how'd you let it go mm, I think I just kind of talked myself out of the idea that I should be like anyone else Mm -hmm. and it was either I was gonna live with the way that I was fearfully and wonderfully made or not Mm -hmm. And struggle to be something else that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I think there are certain women in the industry who have embraced who they are and their beauty Mm -hmm. in ways that has 
empowered me. Mm. You know, seeing an interview of Viola Davis saying, listen, going to the monitor to check my mascaras, that has nothing to do with my character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Am I telling the truth? Mm. And I started to study those those interviews at a very young age. Mm. And then I just put it in my spirit that it's about the craft, like it's mm. about the truth. And alongside that, as I was growing up, that self-acceptance and that beauty of who I really am on the inside mm-hmm. just started to shine through. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what people are feeling right now, you know. Yeah, Not I mean, only, I, that's the know? interesting thing, right? Yeah. So, like, you go through that struggle, but like I said, I mean, when we started, you know, this interview, you know what I mean? It's a it's a very fascinating thing because um, I came out here, I actually think it was before the premiere, and I was, yeah. you know, for another set of interviews for the podcast, right? And mm-hmm. I was driving down one of these streets in West Hollywood. Yeah. And I see these gorgeous character posters for mm. Wakanda Forever. And it yeah. was like so striking. And I'm I'm a little older than you. And so what that means is for all of my childhood, mm. who could be beautiful and who could have glamour bestowed upon them? Mm. With a couple exceptions, like maybe Denzel, Holly Berry. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be, like, one or two at a time. Mm. But to see, like, a whole, like, row of y'all, you know, yeah. and y'all looked beautiful. Like, it was, like, I filmed it and, like, sent it to people, like, holy, because the, wow. they weren't out, like, everywhere like that. Yeah. Like, it was, like, I was, like, I can't believe I'm alive to see this. I literally wow. mean that. Like, when Thank I was, you. like, young, like, when I was, like, you know, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. Like, this would have been all white. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I just, I wonder how it feels to see that, like to, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially given what you just said. Yeah. You know? It feels like you're in something that's really transitional and like, when I say that, I mean like times are changing, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm where we're not being told that we're not good enough and we're Mm -hmm. not accepting that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in this weird place where as a black woman, I'm moving into a space where I'm finally being called beautiful mm, but mm. I didn't wait for them to tell me at first I yeah. told I told it to myself and that's for everyone on the cast as well and right. and that inner beauty is transcending mm-hmm. and that's inspiring others mm-hmm. so it feels it feels great though you know the TikTok thing is a lot you know <laughs> I put I put you know it's it's it's, yeah. it's I see it as really flattering and I'm yes I'm really grateful that you know, someone's saying, wow, like, this person's really beautiful. Like, we have yeah. a crush on her. Like, that's yeah. really cool. Like, I've never been crushed on before yeah. <laughs> in school. Like, I got bullied for how I looked. Yeah. Um, But alongside that, just being a part of a franchise and a, and a production that champions black beauty, mm. not on a vanity sense, yes. though. Right. That's the, like, the beauty that you're seeing is from within. Mm-hmm. It's not about going mm-hmm. on set and putting on this makeup and da-da. Mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. literally we, we don't even have a bunch of makeup on. Like we literally just well, it's not huh? it's literally nice and simple. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. It's the inner journey. Mm-hmm. It's that inner beauty of who we are mm-hmm. that's shining through. You know, Black Panther, I'll be honest with you, Black Panther, the first film, it helped me realize and understand how beautiful it is to be African. I'll be wow. absolutely honest. Wow. These are things in school, like when you're going to school, people are bullying kids for being African. And right. then you're you're taking in the psychology that right. that's wrong, right. you know? Right. 
and you're comparing yourself towards some this is our homeland mm. this is the mm. motherland this is precious and we mm. didn't know that as mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. when I was growing up I did not know it mm-hmm. until my dad is bringing me books about black scientists and inventors mm-hmm. I'm learning about the first black woman to go to space mm-hmm. the first black person that made hair products mm-hmm. Madam mm-hmm. CJ Walker like, I'm mm-hmm. learning these things and Black Panther being a part of that and seeing how the diaspora has just really just embraced it helped me to go and dive into who I am, you know. Ryan, and I got to make sure I, I say this correctly, it's the only time I'm going to look down at this paper. Me and Ryan actually talked about this a little bit, and mm. it's actually a very, very important uh, point. Yeah. Um, we were looking at uh, the box office figures uh, for Wakanda Forever, which mm. uh, now is at, if I'm reading this right, almost 700 million worldwide. Um, this is the highest grossing movie where the lead character is a black woman and it's you. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> like, that's... Wow. That's a thing. Yeah. And that's a lot of money. Like, that's not a small amount to be, like... Yeah. How does that feel? Man. Um... Yeah, I've not, like, processed it a bunch because I'm just, like, I'm just taken back by it, you know, the ways in which the first film was so well-received. And I'm sure there was so much doubt. I'm sure they didn't think or didn't know if we could. And we just had faith that we could. And and we didn't really do it for the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, right. I, and I know my brother never did it for that. Mm-hmm. I know we did it for the culture. We mm-hmm. did it for purpose. Mm-hmm. And then the numbers just added to that mm-hmm. to prove the point that we are worthy. Mm-hmm. And this time around, it's really surreal because I knew that even though the circumstances is incredibly difficult. I knew that at the end of it, I would have to face that fact that I've been blessed to represent black women Mm -hmm. as the first black female superhero Mm -hmm. lead in a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Mm -hmm. And I knew that sentence would come out of my mouth eventually, but I just was too scared to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I just had to lock my head down into the work Mm -hmm. and dedicate the film to my brother and be there um, I'm still processing, yeah. but I feel emotional because it's just like, I'm like a young kid from Guyana, yeah. you know, I'm just a young girl from Guyana that just had this dream mm-hmm. and a few people gave me a yes, mm-hmm. like Ryan and Chad just gave me a yes, mm-hmm. you know, Ryan being such an, a, a sensitive soul and also a brother that really just trusted me on this yeah. one to join him on this journey to honor our brother mm-hmm. and trust me in the ways that probably some people may have never done in that mm-hmm. for for me. Mm-hmm. And for you to say that is, there's a lot happening right now. I know, I know, yeah. I can imagine. I can, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot to absorb. How did you, how did you find out once it was decided that you guys would go forward, Yeah, that it really was going to be you, that you were going to be the lead? How'd you find that out? Because there are any number of possibilities for how this could have gone. Man, I think it was Denyan and Daniel Kalia. Mm-hmm. They were like first responders mm-hmm. when bro passed. Right. And I woke up mm-hmm. to some disturbing emails and I was just like, everyone's tripping mm-hmm. and I'm going to call Chad. Mm-hmm. 
So I tried to call Chad and I was on the phone to Daniel at the same time. He's like, Tish, the family. And I kind of just lost it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not doing this without Chad. I'm like, so, so that's done then. You know, we're not, I'm not doing that. And it was really denying Daniel that was like, Tish, like, I don't know, but you might, you might have to do this, Tish. And well, I was like, what? I was like, no. But can I just push back a little bit? Yeah. I mean, because the obvious thing people would say is in the actual comic books, that's yeah. that's what happens. I know. Yeah. I know. And um, I know that there's a world where we wanted to do both. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there was a world where Shuri gets to do that alongside right. her brother. Got it. And yeah. that's... That's the world you wanted. Even not having that is like mm-hmm. eating me up a lot. Mm-hmm. The love that Shuri has for T'Challa is the love that Letitia has for Chadwick. And that's intertwined. Right. And it's really hard to imagine a world where she has to go through that and I have to go through that without him. Mm-hmm. And Ryan said he wanted to speak to me. Um, and I spoke to him and he was like, just basically talking me through the ways in which we could do it. And I was like getting ready to be like, I'm out. Right. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> right, right. Um and he basically said that he also saw a poem I wrote for Chad on my Instagram page. It's got like a million views or something, but I couldn't write a statement. I didn't know how mm-hmm. to like type words. Mm-hmm. I can only speak Mm -hmm. and I would like record stuff like when everybody went to bed and take stock images and piece it together on like Final Cut Mm -hmm. and like speak over it and talk about the ways in which poetically as best as I could, this was, this was, I was processing that. And he was like, I heard that and I feel that the emotional arc, uh, the emotional journey of what Shuri's feeling, that's the lens in which we're going to do this. And we didn't even get to the Black Panther part yet. And for the first time, because I had it had been like two months after Chad had passed, for the first time, I was a little bit relieved that that would be the ways in which I could contribute because I was really hurt. And for the mm-hmm. first time, it was like, Every bit of pain that you feel right now, you're just going to pour it into her and that's how you're going to heal. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the powerful part. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'm going to still process that as I'm doing the film because it comes later on in the journey. But it was really Ryan that helped me believe in myself. Mm-hmm. I struggled with that because I knew it would happen eventually but I thought it would happen with my brother being here. And Ryan could tell that I just felt insecure. And he would shut down every single doubt, every time. Mm. He would purposefully encourage me the way that my brother would, Mm. you know, to be like, you are enough. Mm -hmm. You do belong in this space. Like, this is not a mistake. Mm. I always felt like, man, like... (laughs) You know, I'd rather my brother just be here, you know. And we know that that's, like, really tough for all of us, but 
even though we were hurting, Ryan had enough strength to just pick me up, mm. you know, mm. like literally mm. like pick me up and be like, I'm not going to let you just sit here and, mm. and, and, and not see that you could do this. Because mm. if your brother believed in you and you walked into that audition room that you were his sister and I believed in you, we're still, I'm still holding that same belief in you. So that's how I got to process slowly, but in a healthy way, how to, and I don't really want to see, I don't, I don't really walk around and be like, I'm the lead of this. Yeah. I see it as I'm a vessel. Mm-hmm. I'm a trusted vessel mm. that's here to honor my brother mm. alongside mm. someone that I love, who's mm. Ryan, alongside Angela mm. Bassett, alongside Danai, Lupita, mm-hmm. like, you know, and Winston, everybody. Mm-hmm. So I never carry that with like, I'm leading a film. Mm. I just carry the the, the essence of, I'm here to to be a vessel. I'm here for purpose and, and to honour. And Ryan really helped me with that. Mm. Um, if I'm wearing the suit, <laughs> you know, for the first time, we would huddle in a circle, myself, Ryan, Nate, Lupita, Winston, and we'll bow our heads and we'll just give honour to Chad and be like, mm. bro, you know, we'll just pray and like, bro, Tish is about to do this be with her Mm. that meant everything for me Mm. for him to take the moment out to be like let's huddle Mm -hmm. to support you as you do this because it is hard Mm -hmm. um the adventure and the fun of it hasn't it it hasn't set in yet Mm -hmm. it's still Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. the the pain of it and um was it ever fun it became fun (laughs) there were times where it was fun again ryan just being that big brother of support mm. and love. Mm-hmm. If I wear the suit, when it's time for me to wear the suit and walking, it's like, you'll literally be like, the Black Panther's on set. <laughs> <laughs> like, please don't do that. He was just like, have you read the comic books? There is T'Challa the Black Panther right. and Shuri the Black right, Panther. Right, right, like, right. your brother is right. proud of you. Like, yes, yes. stop being intimidated. Stop, yes. stop downplaying mm-hmm. it. You mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. He's like, Namor <laughs> and the Black Panther are having a conversation. This is a big movie. Turn your phones off. I'm like, you could just say Shuri. He was just like, right now, the Black Panther and Namor are having a conversation. <laughs> And, you know, fun moments of, like, being in the suit was, like, just being on set with M'Baku and just mm-hmm. having that scene, mm-hmm. having that moment of, like... You know, um, <laughs> when I was... Uh, I, I had the, the great fortune of being here in L.A. and in New York and seeing it both premieres. And, man, mm-hmm. because the movie's so heavy, that part where, like... You, and I think it's what you're talking about. When you come out the ship... yeah. Like, people lose it. Yeah. Like, they really, 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 really lose it. And I I hadn't peeped this until Ryan pointed it out to me. Which is that y'all send Chad off in the ship. Yeah. And then you come back down out of the ship. I was like, man. Ryan. Dang. That's the first time I'm putting that together as well. So you started off, you know, you were talking about, you know, being younger and seeing Viola Davis and how, you know, yeah. her words affected you. And like, you're now, you're in the Viola Davis position for somebody that's young. Wow. How's that feel? Oh, man. 
It's so funny that you mentioned that. I just sent Ryan a video of this father going into a room where his two little girls are dressed up as Shuri. Mm. And I think the little girl, maybe she looks about like three and the other one looks about six or seven. Yeah. And uh, the six and seven-year-old, is she's like doing the, the Shuri painting mm. on her little baby sister's face. Mm. And they basically get caught. Mm. And they look like Shuri in the comic books mm. as the Black Panther. Mm. And that for me is just full circle. Yeah. And that makes me feel very proud. Mm-hmm. I feel... I feel that I've done something meaningful in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I just pray it continues. Mm-hmm. I pray that when mm-hmm. it's their turn for them to inspire another young girl, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ripple effect, the chain effect of that continues. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud that those little girls feel beautiful and empowered Mm -hmm. and to understand that they can access their emotions they can process they can be you know they can be all those things Mm -hmm. and beautiful at the same time so Mm -hmm. honestly I'm I'm really proud of myself and and proud of us as a as a team you know Mm -hmm. to put that type of energy and that type of messaging out there Mm -hmm. no you've you've done uh you've done something really significant like you're trying to be true to something as you said dedicate your performance to something Mm -hmm. People still got to come and see it and watch it and feel entertained. Mm-hmm. Like all of that has to be, you know, on point. And y'all, y'all really did it. So congratulations. Thank you should you. be proud of yourself. Thank you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I'll confess that that last interview with Letitia was one of my favorites. She came to the studio in Los Angeles where we met, glowed up and glamorous, a full-on leading lady for the MCU, the biggest franchise of our time. I don't mean to keep harping on the various firsts and the boundaries being broken, but in a warming world where democracies teeter and viruses roam unchecked, with so much wrong, this is a thing that is going right. And it's not small. Our art and politics are entwined. Birth of a Nation wasn't just a racist film that birthed modern cinema. It also birthed the second Ku Klux Klan. Policy was the brick and art was the mortar of that older world. And it will be the same for this one. That said, the world of Birth of a Nation enjoyed the luxury of lying, of erasing human beings with all their intricacies and differences and painting them in black and white. This world of Wakanda, the new world, has no such advantages. Any real interrogation of allyship means an interrogation not just of what oppresses, but of what we are in our most private moments. That's not always endearing. It's awkward. It shames us. It hurts. Because it's true. By the way, we talked about box office results in my interview with Letitia. As of this recording, Wakanda Forever has grossed more than 800 million and counting. On the next episode, we reach the end of our journey to make Wakanda Forever and talk to some people who have been part of this since the very beginning. Nate Moore. It was like, oh man, if we blow this, 
we are gonna make it hard for movies like this to get made. Yeah. Because yeah. you go, well, they were batting a thousand until they made Panther. Right. And luckily, the reverse happened. Simone, Ledwin, Bozeman. And those are things that I see in the character that I know are Chad, too, right? In a lot of ways, it's like Chad was being prepared his whole life to play that role. Because T'Challa's character is his character. And Ryan Coogler. I haven't had conversations with Stan Lee about him. Like, Stan Lee was like, yeah, I made him perfect, like, for all the races out there. Like, he was like, can't say nothing, you know? I'll be back next week with another chapter of Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. If you like the show, be sure to follow, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. Learn more about our journey at ProximityMedia.com and follow at ProximityMedia, at Marvel, and at Marvel Studios on Twitter and Instagram. Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast, is a production of Proximity Media in collaboration with Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment. The series is written and hosted by me, ta Coates and produced by Paula Mardo. Executive producers are Ryan Kugler, Zinzi Kugler, Seb Ohainian, and Paula Mardo. The film score is composed by Ludwig Gorenson. James Kim is our story editor. Our audio editors are Cameron Kell and Cedric Wilson. Sound design and additional music is by Pat Masidi Miller. Lauren Newson is our audio engineer. Paulina Cherizova is our production assistant. Special thanks to Octavia Rideout, Adam Cole, Susan Mueller, Lydia Ward, Courtney Archard, Natalie Mead, and the Proximity Media team. The character of the Black Panther was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, is co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It is produced by Kevin Feige and Nate Moore, and streaming only on Disney+. I'm Tanahasi Coates. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week.